innovative Often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it Make it way harder for them to follow What I take it Hard to swallow like a lozenger Lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious bruh I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk You painted skunks You played enough I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight Welcome to this week's Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw. Thanks for checking us out. And we're going to leap right into the news segment today. I couldn't possibly be more excited for our featured interview with Silvio Baring, 7th Degree Coral Belt. We'll tell you more about Silvio in a second, and you'll hear a lot from him in his own words. He's a legend of the art from a legendary family, and very excited for that. But first, I want to talk to you all, particularly those of you who are listening to the show live, about some things that are happening right now, and then we'll get into the featured interview. First of all, if you are listening to the show live on WHUP or you are streaming the show uh, sometime on Sunday, December 11th, you need to get over to Pendergrass Academy of Martial Arts uh, for today's Rollathon. That Rollathon benefits the George Pendergrass Foundation, benefiting leukemia research. As many of you know, uh, the twins, uh, Rob and Guy Pendergrass, lost their father and started a foundation, uh, which uh, you know U.S. Grappling has helped out with uh, tournaments to help raise money for the foundation. There's been rollathons in the past, so there's a rollathon all day. Started a day at 9 a.m. Uh, I think they're going to finish up around five. So if you are listening to the show live, please get over there. Um, if you can't be over there in person, Person. You can go to the George Pendergrass Foundation page on Facebook. Just search George Pendergrass Foundation. We'll post a link on our Facebook page as well. And you can PayPal a donation to help celebrate this worthy cause. On one of our very first episodes of the show, Guy Pendergrass called in to talk to us about one of the rollathons they'd done, did just a brief five to ten minute interview. I'm going to try to get somebody in the studio from Pendergrass next weekend to talk about the foundation, to talk about their academy, and uh, to talk about how that went and sort of recap it. Uh, so for now, though, um, if you're listening to the show live uh, and you have a gi or if you or borrow a gi, get over to the Pentagrass uh, Academy of Martial Arts and check that out. It's also promotion season. And so people are getting belts and there's no more significant belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu than the black belt. It's a it's a lifelong achievement that where the learning never really stops. And two of the most well-respected guys in the area have just gotten black belts. And I want to congratulate each of them. First of all, Larry Carter is a new black belt under Hoist Gracie. Now, many of you know, um, every year, uh, the Hoist Gracie Network travels down to the Valencia Brothers Academy in Miami. And uh, prospective black belts undergo rigorous testing. It's an incredibly rigorous and, you know, and mysterious test where nobody knows exactly what goes on. But there's not a very high pass rate. And so only the folks that meet the highest standards uh, pass and get their black belts from Hoist Gracie. And I think anyone that knows and is trained with Larry Carter knows that he's one of those folks that does meet those high standards. Incredibly tough, incredibly technical, loves jiu-jitsu, and a really well-deserving black belt. Everybody around is super happy for him. And... I think everybody would love to hear Larry Carter come into the studio and talk to us. So, Elsie, if you're listening, we would love to get you in the studio to talk to you about your martial arts journey. Uh, promotion season rolls on, and a lot of folks, I know the, the Forge Fitness BJJ Blowout is coming up. Triangle Jiu-Jitsu Academy is going to have our uh, winter uh, holiday party this coming weekend. So there will be more promotions to announce as well. And, you know, look, Jiu-Jitsu is not all about the belt, but you, there are so few belts in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu compared to other martial arts that marking progress in this uh, in this uh, practice that we spend so much time in, so much effort, energy, put so much of ourselves into, is really significant. And so as promotions come out, we'll try and announce uh, some of the ones that, that we want to shout out. And I just want to shout out a couple of guys. 
um, that have already gotten their belts. Uh, from Triangle Jiu-Jitsu Academy, Brooks Scarborough, uh, 16 months he's been training. Great positive attitude, really consistent focus, not only on his own improvement, but the improvement of his training partners. Got his blue belt from Seth Champ. Seth Champ, my instructor, Hoist Gracie Black Belt, the other day. Couldn't possibly be happier for the guy. Really well-deserved. And uh, so congratulations to Brooks. I know that uh, bigger, better things are in the offing as well. And I hope I'm not uh, speaking out of turn, but I want to also congratulate uh, one of my good friends and regular podcast listener from out of the area, Chris Amico from Boston Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, new blue belt under Roberto Maya. Um, so congratulations to Chris. And if you guys are all out there training, um, I want to congratulate you as well. You know, it's not all about the belt. It's not all about the stripe. It's about the lifelong friendships and the... Uh, the journey. And, you know, I wrote a blog post that I reposted that really sort of encapsulates my feelings about jujitsu belts, which is um, the belt is, and I'm going to use a, a word from ancient Greek because those of you that know me know, know that I'm a giant nerd. So the belt is, is a synecdoche. And what that means is it's, it's both something that exists in itself and it's also something that represents something else. The same way you, uh, like if you, if you were working on a boat and you call somebody a hand, like a deck hand, it's like, yeah, he's using his hands, but, but the term hand represents something else. It represents someone that helps you, someone that, uh, another set of hands to help you do the work of the boat. And that's what a jujitsu belt is. A jujitsu belt is... Uh, you know, at the end of the day, like Mr. Miyagi says, it's just there to hold up your pants or like uh, Hoy says to cover two inches uh, of your posterior uh, and, and the rest is up to you to cover. But it also is something that's meaningful. It's something that allows you to, uh, it's something that matters in terms of the time, the energy, the effort that you spend into it. And so it's great to have something that reflects that. So congratulations to everybody who got promoted. With that being said, that's the news segment. We're going to not delay anymore. I'm very excited to bring to you our interview with Silvio Baring. Silvio Baring is martial arts royalty. His father, Flavio Baring, is a red belt. His brother, Marcelo Baring, the late Marcelo Baring, was a legend of jiu-jitsu, and he himself is a seventh-degree coral belt. Not only in jiu-jitsu, but he also trains and has worked with legendary MMA fighters such as Anderson Silva, Fabricio Verdum, and many, many more. During our hour-long conversation, he talked to me about working with those legendary fighters, about what the most important thing he learned from his father was, about his brother's uh, most famous Valetudo matches, and more. Plus offering some tips uh, from modern jiu-jitsu practitioners about how to train, about how to compete successfully, and what he thinks about the modern sport game and how to fix it. We also talk about self-defense. Fence. We talk about his, his association and much, much more. So I think you're going to enjoy this as much as I enjoyed recording it. I want to thank Silvio Baring for taking the time. Let us know what you thought of the show. You can check us out on Facebook at Dirty White Belt. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Dirty White Belt and DWBBJJ, respectively. You can also use the hashtag DWBBJJ to get at us in posts. You can always email the show, cagesidewhup at gmail.com. That's cagesidewhup at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher and subscribe. And if you really like us, leave us a review. It does help with visibility. Without further ado, here's our interview with Silvio Baring. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company. Toro BJJ produces the highest quality gis, rash guards, and grappling supplies for every Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner. You can check them out online at torobjj.com. Our thanks to Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for making our featured interview possible. So let's get to it. So your father, Flavio Baring, is a legend, and I'm wondering, what is the most important thing you learned from your father in terms of Jiu-Jitsu or in terms of life? 
the most important thing for my father is that Jiu-Jitsu is real. It's not to be uh, the movements that we train, the techniques. They don't have feelings. They don't have sex. They don't have age. They work, but they work for real. And we have to believe in it and train for to make it happen this way. You know, if it's realistic, it's okay. If it's not, uh, the things you don't do, you do it. Uh, um, are compromised, you know, like. So that's what I think was the most important. My father was a was a practical man for this issue. He was very very important for this uh, this setup on my mind mindset. I've read that you started training at the age of four, and that you trained as a child with Joao Alberto Bajeto. And uh, yeah, do you have memories of training with Joao Alberto? And what are those memories? My <laughs> uh, grandmaster Alberto at that time he was already. Uh, Studying, I think he was already finished the university for psychology, and he started to work with that as well. He was teaching um, the, you know, like three, four classes a week. But the most of the week we had instructors training us. His his son, Rodney was a, an instructor at that time, and we had some others, other instructors that helped there. Um, very important in that that uh, that point of my life. And Mr. Roberto always come. The match with Master Alvaro at least twice a week to have a uh, interaction and exchangement between the two clubs. Uh, so we had to fight. That's why in the beginning I was part of Master Roberto uh, group. After that, when his academy, think he stopped the, the the business to open a clinic for psychology and. Uh, so I, when I went back, I, I moved to Sao Paulo. When I came back to Rio for a holiday, and I went to train with Marcel Alvaro because it was my, for sure my, my second option. The guy that I wanted to train, his competition team was solid at that time. And when he competed with us, it was always tough. So I respect him a lot. And uh, he received me as, as a son and took care of me from there. And you became, uh, as a purple belt, you became an, an, an assistant instructor with Master Alvaro Bajeto. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. That was a that was a, a gift because I could uh, go to his classes. Because when I when I was a kid, you know, I wasn't really skillful. I I had a good coordination and I uh, could learn fast, but not really skillful as a fighter. I was a weak kid, but uh, I, I I need to train a lot because I had a, a brother that was two year, two years younger than me and challenged me challenged me for real every day. So I need to be prepared for him. So I train more than I, you know, for being my father never let me, allowed me to go for any submission with my brother. He was two years younger than me. But my brother was already four years old. He was dangerous. He was like a, a little tank. And I was a skinny kid. So we had to, to, to survive at that point. So for my, my, my gift was to have my brother as a challenge for me, and uh, the practical part of Jiu-Jitsu to, to train a lot, to learn really, to make it real, made me prepare for that challenge without uh, taking advantage over him, but uh, be able to control him. And this this kid became a legend in Jiu-Jitsu, so for the whole life, until he became adults, it was like, if anybody asked me if I did what I did in my life, or well, I'd never, but I fought my brother maybe a hundred times, so I think that was enough for background with, with someone that is this caliber.
you know, it was a, a gift. And Master Alvaro was uh, amazing because of the way he teach and give me the chance to be there by, by his side, you know, be uh, an assistant and be able to uh, be ready to step on a mask for him anytime he asked me to do it. But most of the time he, he was the one acting and doing everything and I was learning. Sometimes he put me there just for repetition, some exercise, specific exercise. But when he did had to do the warm up, was with him. And when he wanted to check the level, was with him until he trusted me and, and 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 could be able to just sit on the side. He asked me to do the things, and I became a good partner, a good aggressor. I think that was the most important for Master Robert for me was to, to learn exactly what was the proportionality means for training. How can you? get the best from someone as answer and make it better every time you, you, you put a hand on it. And his technique for that was amazing. You mentioned your brother Marcelo Baring, who is a legend in jiu-jitsu. And I want to talk to you about his fighting career and your time training together, both in jiu-jitsu and judo. Uh, your brother Marcelo had a series of fights with Cassio Cardoso, who is another legend, that are still pretty famous today. Were you at those matches? Not all of them. I was at the last one. The first one, I don't remember if I was there. The second, I wasn't. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I think I was in the first one. Yes, because I competed as well, the same competition. The, the second, I wasn't there. And the third, I, was, I, I fought in the same, the same event. When it was the, the, the time that I fought uh, for one hour. The event I fought as well. I fought for 20 minutes, the first fight. I had a chance to train myself a lot for the to fight Cassio. Cassio was, a, you know, I think was the best athlete of uh, that generation. He was, a, he was the top in the, sh in the shape for physical preparation for, you know, training uh, as science is concerned. And he, he did amazing job of getting ready to fight myself for his third fight, the one he fought for one hour. It was amazing shape. And I think he... he, he you know, uh, put Marcelo in a, in a situation that Marcelo really had to give his heart and his, all his soul for you know, to, to, you know, face Castro. And Marcelo went to beat Castro, I can tell you. Castro was a, was a you know, better prepared, better condition than Marcelo. But Marcelo had a more, like I think, it was like a, a it was a lion. And so uh, anything for Marcelo that would give a chance, uh, he would take it. I think that was a, the, the difference between both. Marcelo was amazing, amazing fighter. So you mentioned that you did a bunch of training with your brother, and I'm sure you trained with a bunch of other incredibly tough people. I'm remembering who I, I, I was wondering who at that time. Who are some of the toughest people that you ever remember training with? And do you have a particularly tough day of training that you remember, either with your brother or with some of your other training partners? Oh, there's so many tough people that I trained with. You know, I mentioned a lot, but uh, for sure the Number one overall, that always was a, was for sure we're gonna get that was Hickson. Grace was amazing, like the, uh, I think that the, the number one guy for to row and know that you're gonna be on the bottom and you're gonna be tapping you very soon. But uh, and uh, Mauricio, Jorge's uh, Grace's father, Mauricio, mm -hmm. Mauricio Gomes, was a uh, was the guy that one I row with. He had a different guard at that time. And uh, he was starting, he was a heavyweight, very strong guy, and I was a lightweight. I think when my smartest son started to do a different, like, climb the arm bars and triangles and sweep from close guard that people wasn't doing that time, and he got me really, really 
you know, that was one of the worst days of my life because I couldn't do anything. I was trying my best. I wanted someone guiding me over and over again in some uh, different options until I asked me, asked him to teach me that. And I loved it and I started to do it that from there. It's really advanced game for, for us. I think Hall, Hall's grace was responsible for to bring it on because of his mind. And uh, for sure, my brother, uh, Maurício, the guys that I fought, like uh, Pascal Duarte, Peixotinho, uh, uh, the, the black belt who beat me in the, uh, my second fight in the black belt. I lost to Peixotinho, was the only one I lost in black belt. And I didn't fight so many, but I, don't, I won all of them. But this one with Peixoto, he submitted me in our bar. It was my second fight in black belt. Pretty good fighter, amazing fighter of that generation as well. Uh, in Judo, amazing people as well, like Sensei Medi, all, all the group from there, you got, no, no, I trained with Nate Wilson, with uh, Marcos Delicio de Luz, uh, I thought, you know, so many, so many, uh, many, uh, many, many good people in my whole life. And I'm still meeting people who are amazing, still in my journey, I'm traveling a lot, and everybody, everywhere I go, I have a chance to meet someone amazing what to, to train with like uh, and uh, or like my my guys Marcio Corleta, Fabrizio Verdun, uh, Mario Reis when was uh, with me until got his black belt there got black belt under my hands as well uh, Rosângela Conceição, Ronaldo Jacaré trained with me for years, Anderson Silva but uh, like training with my master, with Master Alvaro Barreto, training with Master João Alberto Barreto when I was young, I had a chance to go with him. Training with my father, oh, those guys. Do some positions that we did, like with Master Helio uh, Grace, Grand Master Helio Grace, that was amazing. It was better than anything else. The way they do it, so simple. The simple thing, so good. So you mentioned uh, Sensei Jorge Meji, one of the, uh, the best judoka and uh, ran one of Brazil's top judo schools and is still teaching today, even in his 80s. And uh, you mentioned a lot of tough judo people that, that you trained with. What, what did you think you learned from judo generally and from Sensei Meiji specifically? Throw your opponent on the ground and stay on top and go going to close guard and then you're going to beat the guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically that. Throw your opponent on the ground, stay on top, don't go into close guard, there's no way to do it. I had some amazing judokas under my instruction that I made them champions, just like that, you know what? It's very, very simple. Make them throw everybody on the ground, stay on top, don't go into close guard, they never lose. So as, as someone who has achieved high levels in both arts, um, I'm wondering what, what your feelings are on judo and jiu-jitsu and the differences between them, because they've sometimes had an uneasy relationship, and you know some jiu-jitsu guys... And some judo guys don't always, you know, there, there's a, there's sometimes a bit of a rivalry. And I'm wondering what you think, like, you get out of training each art. But the rivalry is impossible, you know, like, uh, you know, it's very individual. Some some judokas are amazing on the ground and can face any jiu-jitsu fight, every jiu-jitsu fight in the world, and roll at the same level with chances to, to get a submission. That's not that's not a problem out there. But it's very, it's very rare to to meet a judoka with, the, with this kind of ability and skill developed like that. But I uh, met a lot, you know, like very good on the ground. And he could be world champion in for years. Like Flavio uh, Canto is a, a very good example for amazing jiu-jitsu fighter that could, you know, fight jiu-jitsu instead of judo. He was Olympic medalist mm-hmm. in judo. But in jiu-jitsu, he could win all the world championships he fought. If he fought one, 
Então, me leva para fora do Egito, me tira para ajuda. Mas isso é muito individual, eu não acho que há uma razão específica para isso. I still see black belts amazing, stand up black belts judo on the ground like kids. Like um, a white belt with a couple months of training can, can really give them a hard time. And uh, that's no reason for that. You know, like uh, I don't see in it. I When I was training my sensei Meiji, I learned that first year, you know, learn one thing. If you have no condition in my friend, don't, don't step on the mat. You gotta be in shape. In shape. Second, You know what? Don't think those guys are going to be easy to uh, put them down and stay on top of them. They don't. They don't let. Don't let you to do that. They fight the life to stay on top. So we learned that lesson. They're really, really easy. When we start training judo, you know, and start competing in university, I learned how important it was to was to be able to stand up with some guys. You know, that put a hand on you and throw on the ground like like nothing. Was, oh come on! And I was not. I was. I wasn't so bad in jujitsu to get thrown like that. In judo, I was stepping on the mat and some guys that put their hand on me, boom. That was a trip. And after a while, I started to throw them back and, and, and got a better better results. And I had good chances in competitions in judo, did some good performances. I, I, I was working one, uh, once and I started to work 10 hours a day in jiu-jitsu. From 7 to 11 in the morning, 3 to 9 in the afternoon, I think, like at night. So I had no chance to train judo anymore, so I had to stop. I had to stop. But I still love it. You, you also mentioned you got the chance to train with Grandmaster Elio Gracie, and I'm wondering if you have any favorite memories of training with Grandmaster Elio or any particular things that stand out about him to you. I, I have one very, very interesting. That was a friend of mine that uh, was training with us there. But this guy was a, a funny guy, uh, very smart, and with some ideas, always some crazy ideas, and very creative. I was a purple belt at that time, and he came to me, and we, we were there, master, uh, master, uh, Ellie was on the mat, and then he came to me and said, oh, oh, Silvio, can you ask Master Ellie for, man, I want to show him a position. It's a very good position. I want to show him that, for, you know, that he's here. I want to test with him. And I went to Master Ellie, and I said, you know, this is my friend here. He asked if you can go with him. He want to show a position. He said, oh, no problem. I go in the corner, on the corner. He was man, he was amazing. You know, went to the corner there, uh, put himself in the position the guy asked him to, to put, and then for a couple of seconds he was waiting, and then he, met, he turned to the guy and said, hey, what's the position? And the guy said, no, no, but, but you have to put the hand here. He said, get, get out, get out, get out. It's not a good position, not a good position. <laughs> so if I need to put my hand there, it's not a good position. I'm not going to put my hand there. I said, get out of here. Get out. <laughs> I hand there. Uh, and so you want, want me to make to make a mistake for you to get me get get out. But it, it was uh, so natural the way he did. Hey, hey, hey. that's not good. <laughs> Another one I was that was actually my fight, my first competition in black belt. He was a referee in my my two fights, my first fight that I won, and the second that I got that I uh, uh, lost for Peshoto. He was a, a referee in both fights, both fights. But the first fight, um. I was, uh, I, I have no, no excuses for to lose, but I was supposed to be on the, the bottom division. I was 66 kilos and I could fight in the lower division, but I was cocky. I just got my black belt and I was doing good in my club. And I saw the, the upper division, the, the uh, lightweight division was like 12 people. And so that's, that's the chance, so I need to go there. And 
And Master Alvaro said, no, we better go in your division. You have a better chance, better start winning a black belt. I said, no, I have a good chance in the other one as well. I said, okay. So then it was the worst mistake that I made because the first fight I fought for 10 minutes and I was dying at the end. I couldn't do nothing. The guy was stronger than me. That could, it was stopping me all the time. I was getting, you know, a lot of work to, to be able to move. At the very end, I, I told him Osotogari and took his back. So I scored six points on him. And that that was it. And then when when finished the fight, Master Elio got both arms, and my arms with his arm. And I was dying. I was tired. And he lift my arm and, and let the guy go. Turn to me and say, "Shit, fight there." The worst comment I ever got in my life from someone so important for me. That 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 took me down. The second fight, I wasn't there. Instead of in, instead of push me, I think I was a shy a shy man. You know, always my life, I was just, I still like a learning and uh and i was a boy i was very shy and supposedly for for this kind of comment can can really destroy instead instead of push you mm. come with some other comment beside that would be great for push me but uh, i was dying so next fight i wasn't there a couple of other questions from those days and then i want to talk to you about your teaching and your your instructional techniques so um I've heard that Pedro Sauer taught for your family and for the Bejedos at Corpo at Corpo Cuatro before he moved to the U.S. Did you train much with Master Pedro Sauer, or do you have memories of him? Yeah, I was I was in charge of the jiu at that time in Corpo Cuatro. So Pedro was an invitation that we made to him, and Master Alvaro always was the the, the, the boss in the business there. Oh, not just music, but the whole club there. I was a I was a partner in the club, and I was a partner in his YouTube with a lower percentage than him for sure. But I was working ten hours a day, like I said. I was working from seven to eleven, three to nine every day, and I started to have I had two hundred fifty students at that time. It was too much for me, and I had no chance to deal with all the group. All the group, I need some help, so I started to to see. Uh, 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 the way I could do it, and I had some friends and some people that was uh, looking for a chance to teach, and I was making, you know, we were making some good money that were for to to pay somebody good level. And Pedro Sauer, he was a uh, a broker, a stock broker. I think he worked with, with the the market, and uh, he decided to don't work with that anymore. He wanted to move to the uh, United States, but he wanted to teach, uh, practice, and teaching. And so we invited him to come to the to Kofuba to teach for us at the time. And then he accepted that was great because he was amazing. And uh, I gave him some very important classes that I had and he took care perfectly with him. So a lot better for amazing teaching, very a lot of charisma. And uh, and then he moved to the United States. Another another people that worked for us as well was uh YouTube. He was uh he was teaching at the Notre Dame School in Ipanema, and then he was just about to close. He was teaching judo there, and some judo and jiu-jitsu, actually. He was a black belt judo as well. So he brought his team to our, our group and had everybody to our group and came to teach as well with us. And another one who teach with me in the beginning of his career and, and uh, got all my students when I moved from here to Sao Paulo uh, was Roberto Prado. Traven, uh, all the groups, the Muzo, the Angelis, uh, Pedro Alberto Braga, Padre Paoli, uh, 
a lot of uh, those guys, they, they, you know, all uh, my, my, my students that became uh, black belts under under the basketball. So, in terms of teaching, I've read that it was about. I've, so, you have the bearing system of uh, the progressive system of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Can you look? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the bearing progressive system? What exactly it is, where it came from, and how you developed yeah. it? Yeah, that that was it for sure. You know, like I said, I, I, I'm easy learning English teacher. You know, and I, for, I, it was easy for me to to learn. It's easy for me to learn movements. So uh, when Master Alberto was was uh, warming up his private students, he always had a perfect setup. He put them in on the backs and start to walk around them and uh, warm them up. You know, they, do, they are doing sit-up, but they are doing self-defense, they are doing guard, they are kicking, they are open distance, standing up properly, exercising the, the basics again and again, getting in base, being attacked when they stand up, being attacked when they go back on the ground, and uh, changing their attacks and uh, progressing their attacks, and, uh, and every time they go to go there, back to the student, do that in a back... You know, uh, increasing the, the, the difficulty because he wants always the better answer, better answer. So every day we're seeing improvement. Fast, so quick to teach. You know, they can, they can make someone do four wheel in five minutes one move for sure. Like you know, I can, like a four wheel. I can make someone. I, I, I give somebody with skills and we make we play with them because the system is easy. It's just it's just repetition, but it have to be a realistic. The, the key is not just the technique, the defense. Is the, the the aggression the proper the proper aggression with intention? So what we make it clear is that for for technique to work, uh, you need uh, to negotiate the percentage of the execution. If you need if you have to put a hundred percent to make something happen, maybe you're not gonna have anything left. And you know, so you need really to not be economic. So as much as you get from someone as, as a question, as a, as a, as a given chance, and you take it using the leverage, using the mechanic, that, that physics over, you know, science that over the technique there to make it happen, you're going to make it. So the key is to put someone to attack that way with that intention clear. Or you want to headlock someone in the car? What's the intention? I want intention to rip your head off. And, you know, because first chance I have, I'm going to punch your face. Try to headbutt you, try to bite you. You know, and I'm going to be make sure, I'm going to make sure the headlock is going to be the key for it to be very tight on you. That, that's my intention. So, okay, depend from there. Easy. So, the intention, you start to, because the, the, if, if we put random, uh, an attack is going to be random, any, anything can happen. Hmm. But the way he did, exactly the way I copied. So, it was very simple. During my experience in showing that in different uh, places, in seminars and courses, and uh, from instructors' meetings for my students, I had experiences that were different than I expect. Like, uh, ask someone to attack me, I wasn't clear of the intention. I always ask for the biggest guy in the room to attack me, for sure. I know I want to make a point. So, if I make the guy attack me the way I want him to attack me, there's no, no way to miss it. The position already has been trained and developed for that. It doesn't work with me. It doesn't work with anybody. And it worked with me. going to work with everybody. And that's the idea. So during that, my visits, I was having uh, different experiences. I, I asked for to attack me some way. In the middle of the way, something happens and change. 
but change and I could see that the the, the, the the option that I choose for for to make it happen was a good one so let's do it again and then like okay I got a good one so I start to build it uh, over my experiences and beside that with the number of instructors that, that I have worldwide most of them very very talented they have the same experiences themselves when they're teaching them. So they bring to me, when I go visit them, I go for, on the match, okay, instructor's meeting. I go talk, what's happening? Oh, gosh, you know, I, I was working in this position here, and with this student, and that, that yes, I was thinking uh, to add this as well for to make, and let's check it out. We make a test. If we have a high percentage of accomplishment, let's put it on, and we move on with that. That's a, a new option, a new exercise that we put on the progressive system. The idea, idea of progressive, is to make from the simple to the most uh, difficult in, uh, as the people is as concerned and uh, distance as well. So uh, I start progressive system with, with the idea that if I own, I'm on the ground, how I will stand up, how I will, uh, what's my first option, what I have to learn first than anything, but to survive, for surviving. It's not about, not about you know, uh, go on top and tap someone. It's about survive. What are you going to have to do? Stand up and run, my friend. If you can do it, you have to pass, but you have to do it properly. So you learn how to stand up. You learn how to keep a distance. You know, you learn how to push somebody away from you and open up distance enough to stand up and run if you need. Or face the, the, the situation. If you don't have uh, enough training on the ground to control someone on the ground, don't be there. You've got to stand up and start from your, from your feet. So the first idea of self-defense is always about surviving. The progressive guard, I, I used the same idea Master I was using because it was making sense. That was his original idea. And I got it. I understood what he was talking about. And so I started to put together more and more movements, adding options and uh, with some corrections from Master Zon Alberto Carreira to uh, showing that for you know a lot of different people that gave their op op opinions for me and um, helped me a lot to, to keep on on the right way, and the results that I got also beside that were amazing. Like, uh, if you put someone to do the realistic, someone who is, who is able to do it, you know, you're set. The, the foundation is preserved, it's there, but it'll be there forever. I, I always tell them, yeah, do a big goal, do a 50 50, play with the group, have fun, make your body move, make, it, make things happen, you know, be creative, adapt, adapt to yourself. When you roll, you have to have fun. But I have to do self-defense. On the side rolling, you have to keep yourself defense sharp because for, 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 you don't have any bad, uh, uh, bad uh, uh, decision that guides you for a dangerous situation because you're not really giving the first um, easier answer. You're trying something more that you have been doing during your rolling. And, and so that's, that's the only concern I have. And I so I keep my, my students and everybody shot on the progressive guard. All everybody have to do that perfectly. The black girls have to do it really, really well. And uh, it's just that you know, it's just master the the, the the foundations, the basics. I'm really interested in the uh, that last bit you talk about because it's something that I believe fundamentally that jujitsu is a self-defense art that it's rooted in these fundamentals, but that you also you have to have fun and so. Um, and so people have gravitated to things like the Berimbolo or other sport jiu-jitsu movements. And a lot of people criticize sport jiu-jitsu competition as di distracting people or taking away from realistic self-defense. Uh, do you think that's a fair criticism? And if you do, do you think, how do you think that 
sport competition jiu-jitsu can fix that? With Should there be rule changes? or If, if, you, if you want a guide, uh, if you want to use the sport as a lesson for to teach people what's, what's the reason for, for that, and you want to keep that, because, it's a, you know, Jiu-Jitsu is, a, is, a, is a, an amazing sport. It's so alive. It's so, it's so um, unique in uh, all the complex that uh, there's no, no explanation for some things. You know, I think to be creative is a, is a good thing. It's not, it's not bad at all. I think that, you know, uh, like I said, when you roll, you got to have fun. It's a game. You have to play the game. The rules for sure should be set for to teach people what what is about what's about the game. The game is about to superior, superiority. It's not about guard. The game is about to be on top, to be mounted, to be on somebody's back. It's about superiority, not to play guard. For sure, guard is an amazing uh, position with a lot of amazing options to score points or submission. And if you get good on it, you're going to be very good in the game. But the game is not building on to teach people that God is the most important thing. It's a build to make people understand that this, uh, the art is built on submission. It's built on, 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 on the on top of your point. Master Gracie that changed the Jiu-Jitsu purpose uh, of domination with, with his natural skills. He was the one, his legacy for Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, not for not under his uh, his eyes. Under his eyes, the legacy that he left it was his self defense system, which I love. But uh, Master uh, Master João Alberto disagree with him and, and say that his legacy to Jiu was his his guard system. He was the one who started to do guard to make guard better, to make guard something dangerous. Was the chokes in the guard, I'm in the guard. He was a quick guy with the legs, you know, omoplatas and um, a lot of uh, different submissions. They, he brought it, brought in by by his you know his hooks, his sweeps, and the passing guard as well because it was he was, his mind was working for both ways. Like every, everybody has it, the same question. When the purple belt, I start to question myself uh, if I was capable to pass my own guard, and I, I figured out that I wasn't. Before I got caught in my guard, I would tap, get, get tapped by myself, so I had to train to pass my guard. And so uh, that's that's a kind of uh, mentality. You, you build your skills, and you know, I think that was uh, something that he did. The guard builds the, the, this spirit of freedom because you can play with the dangers. And then somebody play with turtle and start to expose more and turn the backs and play from there and start to feel comfortable from there. So what are you going to see? That's not good for, for sure. That's not good for self-defense. Being turtle in self-defense, somebody going to smash your ribs or smash your face and knock you out with, you know, you know your, your head is exposed. You have no defense for your head. So uh, it's not a good option for self-defense. But uh, but this is funny that some people adapted that for 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 the sport and make it you know uh, useful. So I have to we have to respect the changes and, and but the, the rules should be built over really teach people that the, the be on top is is the, is, the, is the game. Be on top is dedication. You have to be submitting your opponent. Have to be. Uh, looking for domination positions, uh, superior positions. That will, so the game when it was the beginning, that that was correct way to be. No, no advantage at all. Forget advantage, and the point system, uh, progressive. Two points for throw, two points for sweeps, two points for passing guard, three points for neon belly, four points for mount, and five points for take the back. 
but they put four points uh, because it was, it was a, I don't remember what it was the reason the National Alberto made that change, but they put the same um, uh, value uh, as, the, as the mount. But take the back should be five, not four, with the progression for teach people what, what it means progression. You throw someone on the ground, if you're on the bottom, you sweep them on top, you pass the guard, so you go two, 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 and then when you put it on belly, you go three, you start to escalate for a better position, then we go mount four, and then if, if you take the back, which is the most difficult position to skate, you have five points. But you can, you know, like a, a, when they change guard for for Neon Valley, oh, Neon Valley, two points, guard three points, kill the, the progression, kill the, 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 the understanding. The reason when they, they do the, the, the rule, Master of Alberto Barreto idea, was to teach the people that wasn't really sure what Jiu Jitsu was about, what important importance was of the progression. To go on top of someone and go for dominant position. So that's why you put that point system. I, I want to ask you about some of the uh, the MMA fighters you mentioned, some of the, the best fighters of all time that you coached. A lot of the Black House MMA team fighters. You mentioned Fabricio Verdum, Anderson Silva trained with you for a while, Ronaldo Jacare. Is there a common theme among the, the excellent MMA fighters that you've coached? Like, is there one thing that they all have in common, some kind of trait that you think makes them successful? In jiu-jitsu, makes them successful in MMA. They are they are committed. They are machines. Those guys, you know, to, to reach that level in MMA, it's like you have a some um, famous football player or, or player. Or, have, have to be amazing. Have to take your chance. Have to fight like crazy. And the training that that's a that the most difficult. The most challenges the training the day by day those guys those guys pass through so i have to respect them you know like them they are committed those guys are machines the, 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 if i have for jiu-jitsu competition we are no i'm a team that you know like guys that are not um with any fight sign it and i train them for competition i can tell i'm gonna bring a lot of medals back they don't need to have the, even the really the knowledge for it like, just train them Take the opponent down, stay on top, now throw into his guard, and they're gonna do it. But you know, like uh, if you talk about Anderson Silva, all them, all them, all the fighters that I met in my life, even the guys that are not the you know like highest level, you meet Anderson Silva is, is a is a magician. He was a guy like uh, he was a showman every train. So you go and go gonna see someone that's gonna do something during a training session for sure. That will be like a, a stunt move. And, and, and works and, and make it, you know, you know something that he's seen a, a video game. He come back and then put it on, 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 on it. It's amazing. Do a, a jacaré, you know, getting caught in a situation that he is in trouble, and then you see guy getting out from there and doing something amazing, and then lift the guy some like a Julio Santos or Pezão over the head. Just don't throw over the over the cage there because the the, the, the black house is a, is a not so so high ceiling there. So amazing, a lot of a lot of amazing fighters, a lot of a lot of talent uh, raising like from zero. I saw guys like uh, Wally Alves, you know, like Fabrício Verdun coming from scratch, being nobody, have no really developed skills for that, and then and then become amazing fighters. That's you know is is a is a is a good. Uh, I I will be there 
if I had, uh, if I don't have so much work with my team, I can't, I can't be committed to be on anybody's corner or be coaching specific someone right now. I have a big team that I'm building and I'm working on it until I, I have a, you know, build a second uh, uh, group for take my, take my job and do what I have been doing, have to be myself. You mentioned when we were talking before the interview about that you, you travel a lot to, with your association. You have something like 40 members in your association all around the world? Yes. How, like, your association has really grown over the years. And, like, how is your, how do you balance teaching with, you know, with this kind of travel, teaching your own training, um, with this kind of travel around to support your members in your association? Like I said, my focus now is to do just that, really. Keep traveling and, and uh, keep building association, make it make it to make it grow solid. I, I just want everybody to be organized. I want everybody, the group that I have, you know, the main groups get organi organized, and I'll, I'll be set. But they are doing really, really good. Uh, I'm not teaching um, day by day back in Rio. The club I was teaching here, you know, um, I had to you know give back. Uh, I have no chance for a really big committed teaching there. Um, I had one black belt that wasn't wasn't was he needed some uh, opportunity. It's like was like a son for me, so I I gave the key to him and say, my friend, you take care of the club and it's yours. You go teach, and I go take care of you. You know the way I take care of everywhere. And because I'm traveling now, I'm gonna travel for 32 days. I just traveled now. The last one was for 20 days. There's no, there's no way for me to be committed to teaching anywhere. Mm. I can be on the mats, you know, everywhere the way I'm, I'm doing now, or somewhere. But I not have a club, and I have to pay someone to teach. So I'm not going to be the teacher. Someone else is the teacher. There. Someone else is the one who leads the group. Someone else is the one who have the group in the hand. So it's better the guy be the teacher and I do what I have been doing. For sure, I want to have a, a club uh, somewhere. Uh, I still have to decide where I want to die. You know? <laughs> so I don't know yet. I love a lot of places in the world. I love Rio de Janeiro as well, but um, I will I will lo look for somewhere that I could have a better life quality with more safety for future. You know, when I get I get older. Mm -hmm. um, Security in Brazil is compromised, so I think that's the only reason for me to think, of, think about that. Hmm. But now, for the next five years, no way for Tyler Club. I will say that North Carolina is very nice. Oh, it would be a pleasure. I usually, I usually finish up the interviews by asking, is there anything that I haven't asked about that you wish I would have asked about or that you would hope anyone listening to the show um, would know about you or your family or your jiu-jitsu? There's so many things I... I, I uh, I like to share, you know, like uh, the vision that people have now about, uh, the, you know, this uh, movement over the old uh, school jiu-jitsu and the self-defense, and it's just, it's just about preserver culture, you know, like we, we have something that's really nice, it? and it's based on something that makes it easier. Self-defense makes everything easier, but it takes a little longer for you to... To, uh, uh, to be competitive in, in sport jiu-jitsu when you do self-defense in your, in, your, in your beginning. You're not going to be a competitor as a white belt. You're probably going to be a very good belt, good blue belt. 
And white belt, you're gonna be, you know, maybe when you have a third stripe, fourth stripe, you're gonna be able to um, do some competition. But before that, you're not gonna be trained for competition. You're gonna be trained to defend yourself. And uh, if everybody would do that, you know, uh, but the problem, the, the, the most instructors they lost it. They don't have that anymore. They don't, they don't have the self-defense. It's not there for them anymore. They gave up long time. So they, if they need that now. Probably if it's real, if somebody attack them and they try to do what they learn, probably gonna work. They're gonna find a way to make it work, but um, will be probably unproportional. Is that one thing that we have to understand about the, the what we do as a black belt? When we become a black belt, you have no excuses you know, facing the law. When you get in a situation where you have to defend yourself, even if you do sport jujitsu, never do the self-defense life. I'm sure you're going to defend yourself and you're going to do something. But you have to go uh, and prove that that was necessary, that was convenient, and that was proportional. Your options that you used when you were defending yourself. So probably the self-defense is going to give more chances for to use the right thing in the right moment and um, accomplish uh, the goal to uh, control the situation. And I think the sport jiu-jitsu, uh, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's very free, it's amazing, it's a, it's a, it's a tool that we have, in, you know, the, uh, that uh, is our advantage over any other martial arts. <laughs> Nobody can roll like, the, like we do, so that's our advantage for sure. But uh, we have something so magic, so nice, so, impo- so important with self-defense is that people start, should start to look up uh, self-defense as one option for training, for warm-ups. For drills, that building your student the the, 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 the condition to defend themselves, um, looking for the whole aspects of this, the self-defense, not the, the just the technique itself and, and to save your life, but to be able to justify that um, and, and uh, have to be legal, the legal aspects of over what you train, and that's the one thing that, that that's missing on the training. Uh, most of the places that I have, that, that I know, they they have no really. I, I have I have seen very few people that, that are really into that on self defense, self defending, not technical, but uh, over the, the legal aspect of the techniques as well. And not not just the techniques itself, but the level you you are because as, you, as a white belt, the technique is one thing. As a black belt, techniques another thing. So as a, as a weapon. You know, like uh, the guys have to understand what's attempt for murder. If you have somebody in a, in a, in a rear naked choke, it's attempt for murder, my friend. I'm sorry. Even if you're trying to control the situation, try to choke the guy out, just to control him, you know you're going to choke him out. But anybody else around, you're going to think you try to kill him. You got you to be, you gotta be, be sure that the guys that are watching that happening are by your side. If they are not, you're in trouble. How, how long you're a victim under, under aggression. So people don't, don't, don't think about that. You know, they just do the sport jiu-jitsu or train, or if I get tough, they get in good shape. And if anything happens, and we see that happens a lot, a lot, in a lot of places. We actually had a seminar out here, like, where we brought in some lawyers to talk to us about that very issue, about how you have to consider the legality. That's exactly what is based in my teaching. Back in six years ago, I started a program with, uh, I call, in Brazil, Gerenciamento progressivo de comportamento inconveniente, which means unappropriate, unappropriate behavior, progressive management. I'm going to tell a quick here for you to understand. You know, one of my modest son, Maurice Miguel Pereira, the one who runs Hunter Fightwear, 
got killed in 2006 in Rio de Janeiro, uh, the guy who killed him justified uh, uh, legitimate defense and got out, shot him twice by the second floor to protect his daughter. So I start, I start to, to, to see the justifications in one of them, and was Maurice was a black belt, and then there was no time for the guy to go downstairs. The situation was escalating there, so they decided to shoot, and the, the, the judge considered that was a, that was the right option for him. So besides that, I, I, I need to understand, you know, how far the law is going to protect me? How far can I go? And then the, just after that, as I start questioning myself, start to see a little, um, consider some techniques here and there, start to look them different way. And then I went to a seminar with Hickson, Hickson was doing the connection, showing that any time somebody comes to you and put a hand on you or have any physical contact, you need to connect with this person, make sure you transfer the, the leverage to be connected. Don't get caught, don't, don't get caught out of base. Always have the, 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 the control over inertia. So who's gonna move first? It has to, it has to be the person. You're gonna be, you can provoke, but you're gonna be the one taking advantage of the move. So the idea of that gave me a chance to go back uh, and and do the self-defense different way. So anybody approach me for intimidation, aggression, instead of twist a wrist or throw the guy on the ground or throw a punch or a kick or whatever, I talk to the person. I, I, I connect my body and take advantage of the timing there, so I have the, the chance for to apply my technique anytime I decide. So I have the, the technical adventure over the connection, and from there, talk and talk your way out and train that. Train how to do it. Train how exactly to escalate the situation. How to use the tools that you know that in the psychological psychological training for, for negotiation everybody uses. So you use the the First, the diplomacy, and start to be nice and talk. You know, please, no, please, that's not necessary. Or if you are, if you're not, you have any question, if is if is a threat, not just ask. Are you threatening me? And if the guy said yes, you just have the right to do anything you need. But if the guy said no and is still holding you for some reason, you just calm him down. Please. So you're not you're not a threat, but you look like that. So it's not necessary. Just take your hands off my and then let's go talk. So you can't control the situation better using the tools that we train, but you have to train for that. If something is not, some people have that natural, gonna do exactly that, but some people just freeze, they can't say. But if they train, they will, they will do it. You know, but train them to do it and provoke them, provoke their, their, their emotions. Do that under stress, like make it that more realistic. So the self-defense must be trained under you know, this kind of uh, vision, you know, how I attack you, look at me, and read myself, and you know, in a fraction of a second, I have to read all the situation, know what it is, what, what is, is I am a threat or not, I'm, I'm, um, I'm going to harm you, I guess that the, the way I approach you is dangerous, or what, what's going on, so you have to read it quick, so for to do it, becomes again, the same idea. The aggression has to be good. If I do that all the time, realistic, under under certain control, to guide the, the, my partner to defend himself or herself properly and easier, let's do it. Just do it over and over again. And then one day, if something happens different, you, your skills that you develop as a fighter then becomes necessary to be creative and adapt yourself for the situation and expect that it happen. 
and that's put together uh, your knowledge is up there. And there you train, and your sport is used to let you roll. Come on, then you become really dangerous. You can use you know, all the tools together and take advantage. I want to talk to you guys about Cageside Fight Company for a second. I've been buying from Cageside for more than six years, and about 99% of the gear that I use is from Cageside. That's not because other companies don't make good stuff. They do. It's just that Cageside offers the highest quality products at the best value and, no joke, the best customer service I've ever experienced in my life. So whether you're looking for shin pads, whether you're looking for Thai gear, whether you're looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu geese or Valetudo shorts, whether you're looking for the coolest t-shirts around, check out Cageside.com or come into their fight shop at 12 24 Lotter Road, right in Durham, North Carolina. You won't be sorry. Another thing I want to mention about Cageside is they do more to support local fighters and local Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors than just about anybody else. And so we've got to support the people that support us. Check out Cageside Fight Company, 124 Lotter Road in Durham, North Carolina, or online at cageside.com. So that's the show for today. You can always get at us on Twitter and Instagram at Dirty White Belt and DWBBJJ. You can email the show at cagesidewhoop at gmail.com. My thanks to Silvio Baring for taking the time to call in from Brazil, and my thanks to you for listening. This is Dirty White Belt Radio, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.